Welcome to the Ridley College podcast. Here you'll find expert content from past Ridley events, including our public lectures, a series of scholarly lectures in biblical studies and Christian thought. Tune in to hear from leading voices on the New Testament, children's and youth ministry, evangelicalism, Anglicanism, missiology, and much more. Great to be with you. And I didn't turn around to see who uh, read my book or my blog, but uh, I did, you know, I will talk to you afterwards. You can come up and say uh, whatever you wish to say, but it's great to be in Melbourne. I, I'm from Perth and I've been 17 days. I'm going to be in Sydney with two days in Melbourne for some cultural plight. And then I'm back to Sydney tomorrow. You know, I feel like those bands that have done 35 cities and I've got a guitar and I'm going, hello, Melbourne. And on the back, great city, that's how it feels. But it's been, a, the weather put it on today, didn't it? It was a beautiful day. So it's great to be with you. And also, uh, Ridley is uh, far from Perth, but the number of people who've been working in other jobs or part-time in ministry and said, how can I do some study? I said, you have to do Ridley online if you're gonna do anything, just it's going to help. And it's, it's such a fantastic course, so well put together uh, that People, I'm so confident to tell people about it. But I, I will, uh, I'm looking forward to the responses uh, with fear and trepidation. So it's great to be with you though. Uh, let me begin by telling you if we, let's see if I get this slide up. Interesting first slide. Uh, I recently had <laughs> the privilege of taking part in a reverse autopsy. Anyone being involved in a, in a reverse autopsy? Do you know what I mean by a reverse autopsy? No? Let me tell you, uh, let me explain it. The subject, a young woman, had moved from death to life. Moved from death to life, from morbidity to revivification. And there I was standing as an examiner, more than that, but we'll come to that later, mental clipboard in hand, eager to observe the signs. What had caused this seismic and irreversible shift from death to life? How had revivification occurred? What were the signs that death had been overcome? What were the signs of life that were now evident? You get where this is going, don't you? I'd met a new Christian, a newbie, as we call them in the trade, and it was exhilarating. And journalist and writer as I am, I wanted to ask her all the, new, the newbie questions. What does it feel like? How did it happen? Let's back up a bit. The subject matter has a name. This is not the subject matter, by the way. Let's call her Claire. And I met Claire at our church network's annual celebration in September last year, a Sunday morning of three churches gathering, communion together for all the congregations, followed by food, music, and arts festival on green lawns in a private school setting. It was idyllic, really. Friends who had planted churches with years ago, still going on in the faith. Leaders and lay leaders and newcomers, all enjoying a cracker of a worship service wandering around the gift stalls and the arts and spending time together breaking bread in the spring sun. And as I was eating, one of my long-term Christian companions, Oliver, uh, walked up to me and said, I want you to meet someone from my work. This is Claire. Claire became a Christian recently. Say what? So it sparked my interest. And as a, not just because Claire had become a Christian recently, that's one thing, but because of the type a person, Claire is, who had become a Christian recently. She's a real, live, brand spanking new Christian on whom the gloss paint is not quite dry. Well, that's one thing, isn't it? But Claire ticked other boxes, if I can put it that way. And they're boxes that don't seem to get ticked all that often, it seems for us today. Claire is from Oliver's office. He is her boss. Oliver oversees a large team in a creative design industry that has national reach, and she's part of his team. She's around 40 years of age, middle class, well-educated, Western. She was, is, happily married. Her husband, though he's not a Christian, was at church that day too with their two kids, running around having fun with all the other youngsters as they watched. See, here was the problem. There wasn't a drug habit, non-English speaking migrant background, broken marriage, trailer park existence in sight. Claire was no, as we call it, low-hanging fruit gospel. As we in the late modern West have come to regard it, she was well up the tree, far enough to need a ladder to go pluck. Yet Claire had become a Christian. Claire had moved from 
death to life, spiritual morbidity to spiritual revivification. And there I was standing with her and I just had to know, I had to get the goss. So do you, do you know what she said? Patience, we'll get there. Yes. But first, a bit about me, or how about how I see things? Christian leader, cultural exegete, church pastor, whatever the bio says when I'm asked to provide one for wherever I'm speaking in whatever city. How do I see things? Well, I've been a Christian for many years and I'm hurtling towards 60 at a rate of knots that is inversely proportional to my five kilometer race pace these days, right? And here's what I see. First, I see a loosening of Christianity's grip on Western culture. I see disinterested decline. Historian Tom Holland has observed that the cultural imagination of the West, while still indebted to Christianity, no longer publicly believes, understands or assents to the Christian framework. And Holland says that we're still firmly tied to our Christian moorings. We just don't realise it. And I've tended to say, perhaps, but the ropes are starting to fray. I think we're about to drift somewhere we maybe haven't seen. Well, maybe not since a year that started with BC in our lives. In his book, God is Good for You, the next slide please, Australian author and the foreign editor of the Australian newspaper opens with this stunner of a line, doesn't he? What will it mean for us when God is dead? Who then can humanity converse with when we lose our oldest friend. What will it mean? Putting Holland and Sheridan together, we now realise that Nietzsche was just ahead of his time. We have killed God, but the body's going to stay warm a little bit of time yet. That's the first thing. Secondly, I see a, a tightening of hard secularism. I see hostile interest, not just sort of passive disinterest. Christians are no longer part of our cultural solution, tasked alongside everyone else of creating a common vision of human flourishing. No, we've become part of the problem. Perhaps, I don't know, the bad guys even, right? We need to sort of be flushed out for all of our special pleading and for our lust for power, our latent bigotry, our rampant homophobia, our tax-avoiding avarice. And third, I see a church that oscillates between fear and anger over these cultural shifts and sometimes sits in the middle. On the extremes, in fear, we either batten down the hatches to avoid the cultural enemy or we jettison the orthodox theological and ethical ballast to lighten the load and perhaps avoid the treacherous cultural reef of being cancelled, as is the want. And in anger, what do we do in anger? We demand a recount, a return to the way things were before. We can't imagine what it would be like to be banished to the margins of the culture, the margins in which our voices are no longer dominant, or indeed are said, just be quiet for a while, you've had enough, you've, you've said enough in the public square. You know what, these things affect me, and I don't know if they affect you, but slowly, surreptitiously, and they kind of bleach out my gospel confidence somehow, leaving me with a kind of reflexive, pale, anemic insecurity that somehow this gospel thing will get up and going here in Australia again. It's one that assumes that the clairs of this world, our, our world, the post-Christian Western world, generally don't move from death to life, from spiritual morbidity to spiritual revivification. See, the, the only clairs that that happens today uh, exhibit a variety of the following features. They have anglicised their mainland Chinese names. They are somewhat lonely foreign students, fresh from either the developing world where religion is still public fact, or from those godless Marxist nations who have yet to hear of him. And if they are Western, then there's a good chance they've bottomed out financially, relationally, sociologically, and they're sitting in rehab or a caravan somewhere waiting for someone to rescue them and we come along on a Christian white horse. What these clairs are not, decidedly, are well-educated, happily married, creative industry types living in the inner suburbs of our modern cities, our modern shiny cities. Those clairs don't end up on the reverse autopsy table being examined by theological boffins. Except our clair did. 
which brings us back to Claire and her story. So what is Claire's story? I had to know. You want to know too, don't you? Because you said you did, so I'm going to tell you. It's not one of those sermons. Well, what did you actually mean? So I started asking questions like, what does it feel like? I actually asked that question first. What does it feel like? And she said, it feels light, like a burden's rolled off me. And I said, there's a Sankey's revivalist hymn from 1953 that says that, you know, cliche. That's what she said. And what else does it feel like? You know, I did journalism, but that's not exactly the second question that the great journalists asked. And she said this, I feel like I don't need the approval of the other people I work with anymore. It feels like with Jesus, I've got the approval thing sorted. Isn't that amazing? And then, how did it happen? <laughs> About six months ago, Claire said to me, I felt there was something missing in my life. I'd been to the Catholic Church a couple of times as a child. I went there back once, but only once. I, I couldn't find what I was looking for there. And then, you know, I'm in a church network on a great sunny day with a funky hip church in Perth that's kicking goals. And, and then we know what happened, don't we? She found our missionally minded, culturally sensitive, outwardly focused, theologically orthodox, but sociologically progressive church network that plants churches because church plants reach more non-Christians than established churches and shazam! That's how it happened. Except that's not what happened. <laughs> Let's not put words or ideas and ideals that become ideologies into her story. Here's what happened, as I see it. No, no, it's as Claire sees it. Here's what happened from what actually happened. I started chatting with Oliver. He seemed to make a lot of sense to me about things. He was my boss and we got on well at work. He would explain the Bible to me because I started asking him about it and it sounded right. And I watched his life and I started reading it and I decided to become a Christian and then I decided to go to church and that's where I am now. The church is great and I like the people. Ah, there must be something else. <laughs> it's a beautiful story, isn't it? A wonderful conversion story, a lovely reverse autopsy procedure that explores how someone moved from death to life, from spiritual morbidity to spiritual revivification. So beautiful that my reflexive thought was, who is a pardoning God like thee? Who has grace so rich and free? Of course it wasn't. My reflexive thought was, just wait. Just wait until the gloss paint starts to chip. Just wait until you run into a problem at church or a problem person at church or a problem church. And I had to catch myself at that point. You see, I'd realized that I have bought into our narrative of decline at all costs. The story of how the church in the West is now eking it out hard and how we're drifting from our moorings and how the culture has our measure, how the big scandals we read of in the mainstream media and the confected outrage on the socials will wear Claire down when she's been around long enough. See, I told you, didn't I, you, didn't I how idyllic the church service was that day. It felt like one of those moments, you know, those moments in church. Sermon, communion, food, art, sun, white dove. No, forget that, it didn't happen. Friends who I'd planted churches with 15 years ago. Leaders who I'd prayed with. But there were grey clouds on the horizon too. Some chill winds. Absent friends who no longer identify as Christian. Christian friends who were once married to other Christian friends who aren't married to those Christian friends anymore. Sons of Christians who no longer identify as sons but as daughters, new names, new moral horizons, new gospels that look, feel and sound very different. For all of my, this is great, 20 years of hard secularism has bitten us hard. Had it really gotten to the stage that I was as credulous about a fresh new Western Christian 
as I was about a new leg sprouting at a healing service in Tamil Nadu tent revival meetings with little to no network coverage. How did that happen? How would I become the emotional equivalent of a North Korean tour guide who hurries the tourists past the squalor and the poverty? Well, perhaps I'm alone in this room or in this Zoom with these thoughts and these concerns, but I suspect not from as I talk to people. I suspect that somehow in our worst moments we've all been bitten a little bit by that. Maybe not too hard to break the skin, but hard enough to leave a bit of an emotional welt. The number of books, podcasts, sermon series and conversations around the decline of the Western church have not affected you, then you are made of sterner stuff than I. And if it is you, because it's certainly me, perhaps another autopsy is required, perhaps two even. Perhaps we should commence a cultural autopsy, an examination of whether the secular platelets that have settled in our societal bloodstream are as potent as they think they are or they claim to be. And maybe a second autopsy, an ecclesiological autopsy. A self-examination as to why the church in the West may have allowed our gospel confidence to die a little bit. What about us needs to be revivified? What are the signs of life that we should be seeing in ourselves? How can the church revive its gospel confidence that God's mission in the world, and not just the world, our world, continues unabated? Well, let's do the cultural autopsy first. Let's return to the living cadaver, Claire. She made two observations, remember, that, about her life that have changed? Did you notice them? They stand out, don't they? Number one, she said that she feels light, a burden's lifted off. And number two, that she doesn't feel a need to seek the approval of other people at work. So a lifted burden and a sense of approval independent of those whom she would normally seek approval from. Yeah, next slide, please. New York's favourite Christian, Tim Keller, writing in the Atlantic Journal recently, asked the cultural question about the church. Why should anyone besides Christians like me care whether the church revives? Many Americans would say the fate of the church is inconsequential to them. Others want very much to see the church continue to shrink. I believe both attitudes are mistaken. Now, the, the title of our lecture tonight a less straightforward future, an exploration of the church and its mission, means simply this. Perhaps the decline narrative is simply that, a narrative. And we live inside the stories we tell ourselves, don't we? Whether it's true or not depends on who you ask, but also on what you ask. The who question. That's fairly straightforward. Keller highlights two cultural groupings outside the church who, who hold opinions about the church. The first group is passively disinterested. God's people and their gathering has no bearing on their lives. The second group, actively interested in the church, but in its demise. See, one group can't see the church. It's invisible to them. They're not walking past our churches going, if I never go to church, that's the one I'm never going to, right? The other group cannot but see the church as it reflects and reflect, refracts all that is wrong with our culture. Society's faults, bigotries and victims wend their way back to our firmly shut, highly glossed doors replete with their welcome signs. Yet against all that, Keller believes that the decline of the church in the West is actually set for reverse. He lists myriad compelling reasons in his articles. Why? But let me hone in one in particular. It's this. Despite the narrative of where we're going culturally, we are currently being crushed by an unprecedented level of anxiety. Not simply personal anxiety, but a corporate disease that has tsunamied across the Western world. Celebrated program of, well, actually the compulsory program of expressive individualism in the West has had a lot of money thrown at it, a lot of ropes and pulleys to hold it up, but the cold wind of reality seems to be knocking it over all of the time. The culture of it's all on you 
or you do you as we pick. That's the product on offer in our culture and the only product on offer really, an implacable grit-toothed commitment to expressive individualism, as Robert Bella terms it. That's our highest good. There you are, standing naked and alone in the public square, a self-crafted icon before millions of other self-crafted icons. How's it going for you? And you're proud but humble. You're realized but ever learning. Autonomous yet communal. Ironic yet zealous. Free of dogma but ever calling out heresy. And the only question on your lips, in fact, on everyone else's iconic lips, is am I doing okay? Am I passing muster? Not muster with myself, but muster before a watching world. But despite all of the Disney movie theme songs that say otherwise, Keller points out that the commitment to self-expression has not led to the deep freedom so promised, rather to a deep-rooted cultural anxiety. We are not supposed to care about what other people think about us, but we do. We're not supposed to be hamstrung by the number of choices available to us, but we are. We are supposed to be liberated by the pick and mix sexual and gender choices offered, but we feel bound and trapped. We shapeshift and contort, only to find that the culture has shapeshifted and contorted even more, and with all of the dexterity of an Olympic gymnast. And we ever arrive. Is there a safe haven for us? And Keller is clearly not alone in this viewpoint, and it's not actually a viewpoint, it's a fact. Generalised anxiety is documented as the psychological malaise of the month, the year, the decade. Might as well be the anxious age as well as the sexual age, which is the coined term. And I'm not here referring to clinically defined personal anxiety. My wife is a clinical psychologist and she's, you know, we know the difference. But the amorphous general anxiety that has hit us, and it has hit us in epidemic proportions at a time when there has never been more money, more technology, more opportunity to step into liberated self-identity than in our history. And Keller says this, the modern self is exceptionally fragile. While having the freedom to define and validate oneself is superficially liberating, it's also exhausting. You and you alone must create and sustain your identity. Good words, eh? But let's keep the New York theme going because so much comes out of New York. In her commencement address to the 2022 graduates of New York University, that renowned philosopher poet of American literature, Taylor Swift, said this, you laugh. How do I give advice to this many people about their life choices? I won't. Scary news is you're on your own now. Cool news is you're on your own now. I said that slightly facetiously about the philosopher poet, but she is. She's speaking for hundreds of millions of people. She articulates what they think. And her speech in true Swift style was a brilliant piece of poetic prose that reflects the heart of our culture. Yet it's glaringly absent of this one thing, a vision outside yourself, one worth aiming for collectively. Or well, more to the point, because it reflects the heart of our culture, it is therefore glaringly absent of such a vision. Now, if you go back to 1967, the equivalent commencement speech address at New York University would have been calling graduates to bind together and reach for the moon, because they were going to in two years' time. Swift is more earthbound, in fact, more waterbound. The guts of her talk is keep your nose above the water. Cope. That would have been laughed off campus in 1967 to the brightest, richest, most influential people in the world. You're on your own, just like I am, says Taylor. Except she's not, is she? Taylor Swift. 
She throws up a Hail Mary from the backcourt on the buzzer with scores tied and drops the shot all net every time. But the rest of you don't. Turns out you're on your own is a burden that non-Swifty and mere mortals are finding too heavy to bear. And couple this with the technological daily popularity poll of social media, and people find themselves crumbling. Now, permit me one more New York in, uh, observation. Uh, but I do that only, uh, really because with technology, we're all Manhattan now, aren't we? We're all Manhattan. Ideas don't filter to us over time. They come to us immediately, channeled through socials. So a radical gender young person in Portland, Oregon, can speak to a 14-year-old in Wagga tomorrow without the conduit of time and all those things happening. Ideas come unadulterated, mainlined and hose-piped, especially to our younger generations. In a recent essay on anxiety among young people, New York University psychologist and academic Jonathan Haidt highlights how the next generation of students destined to hold the reins of our culture is actually suffering a deep and crippling malaise. Height says that it's brought on in no small way due to the huge uptick in social media participation, particularly since 2012. It turns out that expressive individualism in the social media age is not expressed individualistically. You may well be on your own now, but everyone's watching. Height makes this observation. Put it up on the screen. Gen Z liberals of both sexes have become more self-derogating. They are more likely to agree that they can't do anything right. That's astonishing really, isn't it? In the world in which the bedrock belief is that everyone gets a trophy, that you are rare, if not unique, talented, self-identifying self-doubt is off the charts. Height and Keller have clearly compared notes and come to the same conclusion. And Swift, well, she's guaranteed another monster hit single if she can find something that rhymes with self-derogating. Melbourne's, if not Australia's, you know, foremost funky Christian cultural exegete, Mark Sayers, puts it like this. Our day, anxiety has become one of the significant ailments of our world, yet it is also a signal, an alarm that something is desperately wrong in our world. We must differentiate between the individual mental health challenge of anxiety and the systemic anxiety that our contemporary culture's structures create. We're a burdened people seeking the approval of a 24-7 online audience. We live in a burdened society in which we endlessly circle each other like combatants in a dagger duel. It's exhausting. Now notice I've not mentioned anything about sin yet. Start the car, you know. Claire mentioned nothing about sin in our conversation. It was in there. She would not have moved from death to life without sin being dealt with, right? Yet sin is all around us. The decline of the church, the loss of the biblical story in categories has not led us to a sinless utopia in a world of tolerance and acceptance. Did you notice that? Quite the opposite. The decline of religious dogma, particularly Christian religious dogma, was fated as leading to an end of vengeance. Who needs a vengeful God now? Well, we do, as it turns out. How does the Apostle Paul put it? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for as written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, Romans 12. The vengeance in the West did not disappear when God did. It was merely outsourced to us. The great irony, or perhaps the obvious reality, is that with the decline of Christianity, we now live in one of the most toxic, vengeful, hyper-judgmental societies in recent memory. We cancel each other at 20 paces. Twitter is a cesspool of vindictive hatred. Swarm behavior results in pylons that leave victims shredded and perpetrators 
flowing with bloodlust. Redemption is not scarce. It is non-existent almost. But don't just take the word of the Christian. What about the words of someone like Douglas Murray, English atheist, though that could be changing, and essayist. And he says this in light of Christianity's Western eclipse. We live in a world where actions can have consequences we could have never imagined, where guilt and shame are more at hand than ever, and where we have no means whatsoever of redemption. We do not know who could offer it, who could accept it, and whether it is a desirable quality compared to an endless cycle of fiery certainty and denunciation. You haven't had your, your day hasn't started until you've done some fiery certainty and denunciation, and that's what it feels like. But you know, no means whatsoever of redemption. No one who could offer it. No one who could accept it. He's saying we've been reduced to burdened approval seekers, anxiously looking over our shoulders, couching our language, crafting our image, curating our socials, and avoiding any honest conversation with someone that could lead to a good cancelling. Yet, Claire, Claire found her burden lifted and the locus of approval shifted from others to the only person in whom it was safe to locate it, the Lord Jesus. She found a means of redemption in a person who could offer it, the person who could accept it, not on the basis of her unrighteous deeds, or in the face of a wrathful world against her inadequacies, but on the basis of his righteous deeds, in the face of God's wrath against sin. And Claire had not been alone in this regard. Uh, let me introduce you to another young, hip, urban, creative industry woman who came to follow Jesus, a woman whose writings I greatly admire, American novelist, nonfiction author, and essayist Tara Isabella Burton. Tara Isabella Burton sucked out the marrow from the spine of our modern culture, if anyone did. She lived the most intense you-do-you post-Christian spirituality, free expression of sexuality, hyper-experiential, super-individualistic life possible. And in an essay entitled, I spent years searching for magic, I found God instead, she flays magic to death. You see, in her life, she's she sought ever more intense pagan experiences, but she was unconvinced by secularism's siren call to live under this impenetrable dome. Somehow she saw there was something more going on behind it, just like the Wizard of Oz. Here's what she says. You want unlimited power? You want passion? You want freedom? You want to really feel things? You want a world that is bigger and better and truer and more significant than the one you're living in right now? Be prepared to give up something to get it. Be prepared to become someone you don't recognize. Be prepared to bet your soul. The magic, it turns out, along with everything else, is quid pro quo. At least at first. Here's the thing. The house always wins. The house always wins. Burton found herself giving more and more and receiving less and less. Sacrificed all of myself, she says. I emptied myself out. I uh, hit rock bottom in a thousand different ways and got what I wanted in a thousand more. And then somewhere in the middle of my seeking a vague and generic sense of poetry, I found a specific one. One rooted not in a vague sense that magic was real and that the world could at any time be an enchanted one, but in a concrete sense that at one particular place, at one particular time, the laws of nature had been suspended, which is to say, he says, I became a Christian. You don't want to note that again? <gasps> I got two more questions. How's it feel? No, no. We... <laughs> See, Tara Isabella Burton, burdened and seeking the approval of others like Claire, found someone who lifted her burdens. And despite knowing the depths to which she had sunk in her search for magic, gifted her the approval 
she so desperately thought, sought? The Lord Jesus. But it's interesting. Not just the Lord Jesus, the people of the Lord Jesus as well. This is an amazing line for me. I found myself meeting people who were not interested, but kind. People whose kindness made them interesting. Isn't that amazing? I found myself thinking of myself not as a character in some Campbellian hero's journey, the centre of a mythic narrative about myself, but as part of a body of believers, all of us together, part of a story that transcended us all. Which brings us briefly to that second examination, the ecclesiological autopsy, in which we explore the signs of life in the church. Keller is confident that the green shoots of revival could be around the corner. Why is it so? Where's the evidence? There's words there, I love those. People whose kindness made them interesting. That very line chides the skinny, impoverished reflex of thought that I had when Claire spoke to me about her newfound faith. See, I'm an insider. I know the stories. I've written stories about the abuse in church. The mega stories of mega abuse in mega buildings with mega finances and the little stories of little abuses in little houses with zero money that never get told. Yet, yet I've so often to fail to appreciate that as Paul writes to Titus, kindness, God's kindness lies at the heart of the gospel and is therefore central to God's people. What does the verse say in Titus? It's that one. Don't worry about that one. We'll come back to that. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Titus 3, 4. And back it up one verse. How does it read in the verse before that? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We were looking for magic. It turns out that the post-Christian culture is not that much different to the pre-Christian culture that Paul writes to. Hence the transformation made by God to those who are saved, there's a good chance that that could be the same as well. Isabella Burton discovered a kind people created by a kind God. And Claire too discovered a kind people created by a kind God. For all of our rough edges and the things that we need to resolve in the Western church, we can offer a God of kindness and a people of kindness to a world that is in desperate need of kindness because it's got everything else. An anxious culture seeking approval can find its rest among the people of God. Caveat, as long as we do. As long as we do. And some of the signs are pointing to Keller's assertion that things could be for changing. Looking at the breakdown of neighbourhoods and communities in an increasingly corporatised West, Keller says this, in stark contrast to that increasingly corporatised West, Christianity offers grace and covenant. Protestant Christianity teaches its members that salvation is by sheer grace, not by one's moral efforts or performance. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God. So the cosmic rulers, ruler becomes our unconditionally loving heavenly father. And all who unite with God as Father are brought into a family of faith, which is based not on contractual relationships, sustained only as long as they benefit both party men interests, but covenant relationships in which all parties pledge to serve one another in sacrificial love. How's your church going? <laughs> um, there's something to that. 
Notice what he says, stark contrast. We've been in the church long enough that we don't realise the stark contrast sometimes. And it's becoming more so. Turns out with God dead, conversing with others, at least in meaningful ways, is proving difficult. We are inured to how stark that contrast is, how poisonously contractual so many of the relationships of the world are, and it's perhaps because we've belonged to a church family for so long that we've forgotten the pre-conversion draining experiences of the likes of Claire and Tara Isabella Burton. Perhaps the gospel has lost its luster to us. And do you know what the signs are that the gospel might have lost its luster to you? Us. Here's what I think it is. Orthodox and pious enough to begrudgingly admit that God is still working in the world, just not our world. God is still saving people, just not our type of people. And yet plainly, he is. He does. He does it because he's kind, kind enough to do so. But let's sharpen the blade as we conduct this ecclesiological autopsy, for it seems, as we fear the decline of the church and the loss of mission, that our biggest problem is that we will pitch for interesting over kind. Do you get what I'm saying? Many of the indicators point to that. Much of the money has been thrown at that. How can we get our message to cut through? How can we trend for the right reasons? How do we maintain our social media? How do we pitch our apologetics? There's good coin to be had for marketing types who can turn the Teflon voice of the church into some sort of sticky, on-point Velcro. The aim seems to, get our, to be to get our voice above the clamour of the always-on, the noise. And marketing is seen as a kind of magic that if we can produce the right incantations, it might just do the trick. Let's come back to Tim Keller, whose whole ministry has been about grace renewal. He says this, our vision simply cannot be for a restoration of churches and Christian institutions to their former states of strength. That is to mistake means for ends. Our vision should be that the astonishing biblical possibilities for the church as the community of the spirit would be realized in society in ways that it has never been before. Goes on. The church has been given divine power to radiate the infinite glory and goodness of God in our lives and relationships. It has the capacity to be a new humanity, a community of surpassing beauty. Under the leadership of Christ's spirit, churches have the ability to make their surrounding communities for better places to live so that many are drawn to God's beautiful glory. Find that really, what's the word? Interesting. Yeah? It's really an unpacking, isn't it, of Leslie Newbegin's zip file, the congregation is the hermeneutic of the gospel. And our problem is that we'll settle for the other kind of interesting every time. Technique if the kindness and love of God, our saviour, falls off our radar, personally and corporately. Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy said many true things in his fiction, but he blew it, I reckon, right at the start of Anna Karenina, when he observes, all happy families are alike, each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Really? I think there's a depressing sameness to unhappy family. And I'm married to a clinical psychologist who has heard it all. And there's an unhappy sameness to unhappy church families too. Read the tales of abuse, the escape stories of those who have fled legalism and harsh leadership. It's launder, rinse, repeat. By the time you get to your second book on toxic churches, you know the script. Happy church families, by contrast, 
they find that interesting becomes a byproduct of kind. How can we bless these people in this community that way to meet that need? And it'll look like something different over there. And we do so to the glory of God. Because happiness hits different in every context, I reckon. Let me draw this together as we finish. There is no killer app that we can download from some strategic site that will solve the tension of the real decline of the church's influence on our cultural, social imaginary. But at the same time, there is no killer app that society can download to deal with the crushing burden of anxiety and the ceaseless need for external approval. Though it tries, it tries. My aforementioned clinical psychologist wife told me that the Australian government is creating a program for young people who are feeling stressed by the impact of social media on their lives. It's an app. <laughs> Irony bypass there. She says that the one thing they need is another human being in front of them to talk to them. But ain't nobody got time for that. It cave. We've gone from ridiculous to sublime. My wife and I went to his concert in Perth in December. It was one of the deepest spiritual experiences I've had for years. And I say that carefully and in a framework. Nick Cave, that astonishing Australian singer, poet, prophet, has experienced his fair share of suffering these past few years, the death of two sons and his mother. In his online discussion page, The Red Right, The Red Hand File, he is swamped. He opened it up as a page for people to pour out their hearts and ask questions, and he's swamped. With life-torn people seeking solace and comfort. And in Red Hand File number 200, Marina's anguish is evident in her question. I feel so bleeping empty, so hollow. What can I do? She's asking Nick Cave, who was a heroin addict for 10 years. And he's no orthodox Christian, though recent interviews indicate he's inching a little bit closer. But he cuts through the noise and refuses to simply be interesting. Goodness me, he's done interesting enough for 50 years. He's moved on to kindness. He said this, dear Marina, my advice is to go out and save the world. Smile and say hello to the mean old so-and-so who lives next door, or the cranky cow at the corner shop, for they suffer too. And watch this act of, this small act of unsolicited kindness gather momentum and begin its journey around the world, watch it thunder and roar through the ages and change the nature of the cosmos itself. I just want to say, let me tweak that for a little, little bit, Nick. Let me just tweak that. Here's the good news. Someone has gone out and saved the world. That bit's been done. It's called the kindness and love of our Saviour. And our response? To sit in the suffering of the world, to provide understanding and meaning and succour, and by the power of the Spirit of God, watch God's act of unsolicited kindness gather momentum and begin its journey around the world, watch it thunder and roar through the ages and change the nature of the cosmos itself. That's the point. Let me finish with Tim Keller, who I suspect would get on famously with Nick Cave, not least of all because both suffered much in recent years. There was no such thing as monasticism, through which pagan Northern Europe was turned Christian, until there was. There was no Reformation, until there was. There was no revival that turned Methodists and Baptists into culturally dominant forces in the Midwestern and Southeastern United States, until there was. There was no East African revival led primarily by African people that helped turn Africa from a 9% Christian continent in 1900 into a 50% Christian continent today. 
until there was. Christianity, like its founder, does not go from strength to strength, but from death to resurrection. Death to resurrection, spiritual morbidity to spiritual revivification. There was no spiritual life in Clare. So there was. The gospel lifted her burden. It transformed the locus of her approval. Kindness, a saviour, mediated through the daily life of her boss, my friend, Oliver. There was no spiritual life in Tara Isabella Burton. Until there was. The gospel dispelled the chimera of magic's quid pro quo in a moment of supernatural grace. The kindness of a saviour mediated through the community of the church. Perhaps historians conducting their cultural autopsies will look back at us and say, there was no sign of revival in the early 21st century Western church, riven as it was by the culture wars, the excesses, the scandals, and the oppressive post-Christian secular frame. Till there was. And they will trace the thread back to the myriad, nameless, Christian communities whose kindness shone like a beacon in an unkind world. May it be so to the glory of our kind King. Amen. Well, thanks so much, Steve. Great um, lecture of encouragement, facing the problem squarely, but uh, giving us hope. Um, we've got a chance now to hear two responses. Uh, first from David Williams next door. David, oh, there he is. <laughs> so coming up, David, we'll give you your five minutes and you'll be followed by Helen and then we'll give uh, Steve a moment to respond to you and then we'll take questions from the floor and online. So if you've got questions online, put them in the chat and we'll try and accommodate them as well. Thank you. Well, thank you uh, so much, Stephen, for a very stimulating and engaging um, lecture. Uh, I know from my ministry next door that it's a complicated thing trying to learn another person's worldview and culture, but even harder, I think, to analyze your own. If worldview is like a pair of spectacles, then it's what we look at the world through. I can't focus on my own lenses. I look at you through them. Uh, and I think what Stephen has done for us this evening is to help us examine our own worldview lenses and um, just understand something of the challenges that we face as we inspect our own worldviews. And as I think you've shown us, uh, our worldviews are much more deeply shaped by secularism than we would like to believe. Marcus Aurelius said that imitation is the most acceptable part of worship the gods would much rather we should resemble than flatter them. So if imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, um, let me create an echo in response, not Claire, Taylor Swift and kindness, but milkshakes, Miley Cyrus and love. So Taylor Swift and Miley Cyrus both reflect on the way that our culture understands love. Uh, here's the chorus from Mari Cyrus's song, Flowers. She's um, riffing off Bruno Mars, I think. I can buy myself flowers, write my name in the sand, talk to myself for hours, say things you don't understand. I can take myself dancing. I can hold my own hand. Yeah, I can love me better than you can. Now those lyrics, precisely reflect sociologist Eva Luce's research into love and relationships in late modern Western culture. Luce writes, one of the most significant novelties of romantic love in modernity is that love is now mobilized to secure the subject's self-worth. She goes on to say, the self in a romantic sexual interaction negotiates about the other person's capacity to maintain or even enhance your own self-worth. If that culturally is what love is in the world out there, it's no surprise that we are awash with anxiety. 
because clearly this is not Judeo-Christian love. This is not laying down your life for someone else. And according to the narrative of the Billboard Hot 100, On my iPad, yes. love is about your own sense of self-worth and esteem and your sense of freedom. Our culture has a big problem with love. I think further evidenced by another sociologist, Hartmut Rosa, and his research into alienation. Rosa argues that our experience of time is that it's speeding up. We cram more and more communication events into every moment of every day. And what we experience is social acceleration, and it leaves us feeling alienated. And Rosa argues in a 576-page book that the solution is not just slowing down, but the solution to this alienation is resonance. When you dig into what he means by that, actually sounds a lot like other person-centered love to me. Rosa, I think, is saying that in the face of alienation and social acceleration, we need to learn to give the person in front of us our full attention, truly to connect with them. And as we do that, we will proper, properly know them, but also know ourselves. So whether you listen to uh, Miley Cyrus or Taylor Swift, Eva Luce or Hartmut Rosa, one thing I think is clear that God's love, other person-centered love, is profoundly countercultural in a late modern secular world. And that brings me to milkshakes, my Claire. So I'm a member at, at St. Alfred's in North Blackburn. Uh, the young adult community at my church noticed that immediately opposite our front door is a high school with over, over 1,300 students, just literally right there. And they decided to invite the kids from Blackburn High to come over to church for free milkshakes on Friday afternoon. They had no agenda other than to be kind. So the first, five, first Friday they did it, they had five kids over. The next week, 20 and 50. Now there are regularly 150 high school students enjoying a free milkshake every Friday afternoon in term time. And the kids from Blackburn High, what's the question that they ask over and over again in a sense of complete mystery? Why are you doing this? Now, there's no tool or technique or technology going on in the milkshake ministry. They really have no agenda. They're not instrumentalizing relationships, something we're always at risk of doing. They are just being kind. But this is the Sermon on the Mount at work. Let your light shine before people that they might see your good works. We're supposed to do good works and they're supposed to be visible. Just being kind. In a culture that thinks Christians are the bad guys, loving people with gospel-shaped love is very important. And in a culture that thinks love is about establishing my own sense of self-worth and self-esteem, well, gospel-shaped love and kindness is a vital counter-narrative. So Stephen, thank you so much for richly stimulating and encouraging us in this area. This is the story of my life. There we go. <laughs> Hello. Um, I work with university students. Uh, I chat with some of my husband's colleagues about what I do. And I'm a freak, right? I'm a professional Christian. I'm sitting there over dinner. What do you do? And I'm nattering on something about, oh, I help students sort out who Jesus is uh, so that if they don't know him, they can make an informed decision. And so that if they do know him, they can live lives of integrity, not just tick a box. The woman on my right changes the topic immediately. All right, we're not doing that. As soon as she moves out of the conversation, the bloke on my left looks at me and says, seriously, that's what you do? 
for students interested, and then I like crazy pray and list off the five reasons that students might be interested in Jesus and pray like crazy that they will be reasons he will be interested in Jesus. Uh, so thank you for your talk, Stephen. I, yes, the anxiety that is there with the young. I see that in my students and the, the crushing um, individualism and, and expressive self because you never know whether you've got it right. Choice becomes oppressive when you can't know and you have to re-choose again. And, and I see that. And I see that in their parents. It's not just the students. The one I would add is the crushing loneliness that I think affects all age groups, uh, including the elderly, in some of the ways some of the other things we've talked about might hurt. Apparently the UK has a loneliness minister. That's a sad thing. Um, so I recognised what you were saying in my students and in my peers. And I recognise the background pressure I feel in myself to self-censor because I don't want to have those, con those conversations with people who aren't interested, who are hostile. And yes, I do wonder where is God at work when I can't see him, although I've got a theological commitment to what he does. And I felt uncomfortable with some of the things I heard when I thought, why don't I get as excited about people becoming Christian over there? I have to see it in my friends. And what does that say about my heart for the gospel? that people like me are the ones I really want to see. That was challenging for me as I read that, to have a big vision of what God is doing in the world, not just what he's doing in my community. Although Paul does care for his Israelite brothers and sisters in a particular way, even while having a heart for the Gentiles. And I loved your stories about ordinary people becoming Christian. I had a I think I want, as I was reflecting on your talk, I thought I need to tell stories and I need to ask people for their stories, whether they be Christian or not. How do I remember what it's like to not be Christian? I talk with people who are not. And how do I help them understand what it is to be Christian? I talk with them about what it is to be known and loved by the Lord Jesus. And some of those are happy stories and warm and comforting stories and some of those are stories of disappointment where I failed him, or I felt he's failed me. They're real stories. I've been challenged to think about why I talk about some things with my friends who aren't Christian, and some things I talk about with my friends who are Christian, and why the difference? Do I need to clean up the story of my walk with Jesus and your walk with Jesus? So just as I don't know or understand without asking what it's like to not be a Christian, how do they understand what it is to be, what it feels like? You ask the feel question. What does it feel like to be a Christian? How do they ask that of me? Not just how do I ask that of a new Christian? So that was one of the responses that storytelling. I could tell you the story of the baptism I heard at church, but I won't. But it was boring. But I will. Because he came to church because a friend wanted to go to church. He'd never sorted out religion because, frankly, he wasn't interested enough, but he wanted to be a supportive friend. And fun, funnily enough, the Bible stories were interesting to him. And so then he read the Bible. And then conversations after church on a Sunday become a, became a, um, a monopoly tournament. Interesting. Um, and I didn't actually hear the moment he became Christian in the testimony. And maybe there wasn't a moment. Maybe he discovered he believed this as Jesus became plausible because he saw what it looked like in the daily life of the people around him. So I focused in on your stories. And I want to encourage us to tell stories. And as we do that, listen to stories because then we'll know the right things to say. And Jesus becomes plausible and powerful. The story I've been living in at the moment, actually, the one that's where I'm wrestling with, because I and I'm sharing this because I think it could be us as a Christian community and us in our stories to others. Paul's comments in 2 Corinthians 12 when he talks about weakness. Uh, he asks for an easier run, and the Lord responds, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The story of weakness, I feel, is one we need to embrace as a community because that will protect us against offensiveness. 
and that will protect us against anger and depression. And it's a story of reversal and in embracing weakness, not just recognising it as a brute reality that I have to deal with and that the Lord can work through, but embracing it as the Lord's choice because the Lord became weak. And I feel like there's stories that if we wrestle with personally, we can tell to a community, wrestling with what do I do with oppressive authority, that doesn't have a way out. Me too, Black Lives Matter, violence and all that. We have. And that's a way of dealing with our history as a church, with bad stories. What does it mean to embrace weakness as God's preferred way of revealing? So that's a story that's been living in me. Because I think we need it to live in this world. And it's a story our world wants to hear. So thank you. Thank you for the big picture of what God is doing that expands my imagination. And thank you for the small pictures of what God is doing. That is how it looks in practice. Thank you for listening to the Ridley College podcast brought to you by Ridley College. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and liking our podcast. Also, be sure to check out our Ridley Chapel Sermons podcast through the link in our podcast description. This podcast is made possible through the generous donations of our alumni and supporters. We welcome your partnership with us in our mission of equipping men and women for God's mission in our rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. If you'd like to contribute to our work, you can donate via the link in the description below.